Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. How can the law be used to deliver a progressive society? On Brexit, workers' rights and tax avoidance, we're increasingly seeing high-profile court cases being used to argue for political change. Is this effective and is it the right way to go about things? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope and I'm joined by my colleagues Richard Angel and Henna Shah and our guest today, The Good Law Project's Joe Moore. Joe, thank you for coming on. Um, so what is the Good Law Project um, and how, how did it come about? So people do feel a sort of loss of trust, don't they, in politics and the world at large at the moment. And I think that's matched by a desire to um, act themselves. I think people have worked out that they can't leave it to those they thought were the grown-ups mm. um, to fix problems. And... Uh, there's certainly a class of people that is possible, one or two of them are listening to this podcast, um, who don't feel terribly well represented, but still want to drive what they see as being positive social change. And the Good Law Project and legal action generally, I think, provides a way for those people to feel as though they're participating in the kind of political life of the nation. Because uh, bringing legal actions is a great way to drive focus on issues that you care about. It gives journalists something to write about. It's a great way to hold people to account, to hold wrongdoers to account. And at the moment, you know, my view, sort of speaking very broadly, is that you can look at the world and you can think, actually, the real problem is not so much that the laws are wrong. It's just that the laws are not really being enforced by um, a government that's not really at the party. And you can also use the law to deliver political change. You can use the law to change the law um, accretively and over time. And 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 so uh, it's a sort of, it's a mechanic I think that there's an awful lot of interest in. You can see that interest in a number of uh, political foundations that are interested in funding strategic litigation. You can see the interest in the tens of thousands of people who have given money to the various cases the Good Law Project has brought. And um, the legal community is starting to engage um, more thoughtfully with what uh, strategic litigation means for it. So specifically, what is it that that it is you, you do? You see something wrong and, and you work out how how that can be a court case, essentially. Is that, is that roughly about right? So, I mean, there are a, a group of themes that I'm interested in and have some expertise in. So... Uh, tax avoidance, um, abuses of um, in, it, abuses in the labour market, Brexit, um, immigration, housing. Um, I really wanted to do issues that touched upon people's everyday lives. I didn't want to get involved in what I think sometimes feels like a rather geeky world of interest for lawyers, mm. i.e., um, 
you know, Data Protection Act cases, human rights-y type cases, important cases, but that don't really feel to people as though they touch upon um, their, their, their lived experiences. Um, and what we do is, is um, we look for opportunities to litigate points that feel important to um, people mm. because one of the sort of key governance controls that we have is the case has to be funded. We have to actually persuade enough people that the case is important, that the issue that is raised is important, um, to cause them to dip their hands into their pockets and pay for the litigation. That gives the case a sort of popular legitimacy, but it's also very important governance, very important governance control on whether we're bringing the right sorts of actions. And the political campaigning, and it is political campaigning, isn't it? That's how you describe it. Um, doing it in this way through law is, um, is quite unusual, I think. Um, have you found it to be effective, though? Yes, I think so. I mean, it depends what you mean by political, really. I mean, I've got involved in the legal dimension with political parties. Mm. So I wrote about and spoke about and campaigned about um, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, right to be on um, the ballot, even if he didn't have the support of MPs. That seemed to me to be what the rules of the Labour Party required, and um, the court eventually agreed with me. Um, and there were a couple of other run-ins that that um, Jeremy had um, with the rules. Um, and uh, I wrote... And, so I was interested in that sort of narrow relationship between the law and politics. But mm. um, this is something different. This is, you know, people on the left generally would say that they care very much about whether people who are without power um, or without voice are being um, screwed over by um, badly behaved capital. Um, people on the left would say that they care very much about whether enormously powerful global capital is um, doing what it should do in terms of meeting its obligations to help fund the infrastructure that it requires um, to, to, to operate, that it uses um, in order to deliver enormous profits to its shareholders. And those are issues that are very amenable of, of, of litigation. Government um, does not act in those spheres as I think it should and um, litigation gives me the opportunity to act in those spheres and it's an opportunity that doesn't need to be mediated. Um, if you're a bit like me and you don't always play nicely with others, um, the fact that you don't need to mediate uh, the actions you want to take through the mechanic of a large cumbersome political party is enormously attractive. Richard Henner, um, I'd like to bring you in on this. Um, what, what do you make of this kind of campaigning? Is it something that maybe progressives should think about a little bit more? I think it's used a lot in America. It's mm. something that's um, very much part of their politics uh, going forward. And uh, there are clearly great strengths on that and, and things that we should be um, worried about uh, going forward. I think that uh, the little guy being able to prosecute their case in the law is sometimes a really valuable way to stand against governments who are belligerently um, unwilling to do something. So at the moment, one of the issues that's on the government's um, uh, to-do list is dealing with civil partnerships, currently only available for same-sex couples. The courts have said that they must... Um, uh, they must make them available or they can't have that level of discrimination. So the government has mm. two choices to abolish them um, or to make them available for all people. And they're currently, bizarrely, uh, making the balance between those uh, two. Equally, the um, there are real issues that Stella's trying to bring up about abortions in Northern Ireland. It's Stella Creasy. Stella, Stella Creasy, the MP for Walthamstow. Um, some of the issues that she's um, trying to deal with about giving women in Northern Ireland mm. the access to legal uh, 
uh, and safe abortions has partly come about because people have been able to pursue that through the courts, although not been able to get satisfactory resolution. So I think it's so going from what Joe was saying, it's a really good way of sometimes getting things onto an agenda, bringing it forward, having things to write about. And, and the court haven't said what the, the country should do, but it has said it should act. And that in itself mm. is a quite democratic thing, I think, to, to move the debate on. But it is still for parliamentarians to now come down on the side of the particulars in both of those uh, cases. So um, I think it's interesting and it's something that... Uh, we should think about. And I think what I like about uh, the politics of what uh, Joe is doing is that sense of getting consent for it, you know, whether it's through crowdfunding, the money for it, but the sense that you know, it's, this is not just one man or one particularly rich person's pet projects of like, these are things I don't like well, that I can it, use the court to do. Otherwise, I think it would run the, the, the danger of looking quite exclusive and actually through having, showing that there is some sort of popularity behind this and, and people want it to happen, does just kind of open it up and make it more inclusive than I think perhaps it otherwise would be. I think that that's my sense of it. It's what's quite interesting. I completely agree. I think also it's important to remember that with cases like this, legal action is can be incredibly transformational. It can cause huge changes in the law and change people's lives, particularly when it comes to things like immigration and workers' rights. But I think actually with cuts to legal aid as well, not only does crowdfunding serve the one source of saying, yes, this is a popular action, this is something that we've achieved by the consent of the people, but also it enables underrepresented groups who don't have the capital to take those actions against those institutions or those forces themselves to actually stand up and campaign and fight in a way that's really meaningful. I think we see that a lot with political campaigns. There are big movements and lots of people get together, lots of people fund them and they do direct action and they do massive protests and that's all great. But actually, if you're thinking about making real, meaningful change to people, whether it's about immigration detainees or about civil partnerships, about abortions, actually, it's the law where this happens. And that's really important to remember, I think, when we're talking about campaigning. Um I mean, you know, we all have moments, don't we, um, sitting in the bath where we think um, what fun it would be to be a, a dictator and get, to get to make all of these these choices. And, and, and I have those moments as well. But, um, you know, essentially it's a, it is a democratic project and, and the next step for the Good Law Project actually is to become more democratic still. So I'm currently speaking to a number of organisations about whether the expertise that the Good Law Project has acquired uh, about how to fund... Uh, how to bring, um, how to access uh, strategic litigation, how to protect yourself against adverse costs, how all that experience might be lent to mm-hmm. charities, um, third sectory type organisations mm-hmm. who think they'd like to do this for themselves. So I'm currently writing a business plan that will offer a sort of bespoke a not-for-profit um, bespoke service to a number of small charities. So I'm already doing that in a sense. I've worked with the Migrant Rights Network around um, its case about um, data sharing between the Home Office and um, schools. Um, I've worked with the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain um, that is bringing a challenge to seek to assert as against um, the ultimate users of the services supplied by workers to outsourced companies of employment rights. So typically, if you're a big brand employer and you want to treat your workers badly, 
And what you do is you shuffle them off into a, an outsourcing company. Mm-hmm. And then um, when those workers are treating are treated badly, um, i.e. inexpensively, you can hold your hands up and say, look, nothing to do with me. They're employed by, you know, nameless brand over there. And so what, we, what we're trying to do, a good little project, um, IWGB, is assert rights as against that sort of big brand end user of those worker services. I'd like to go into the specifics a bit more um, after the break. But before that, I just want to ask a kind of as an open question do we think that given populists um are making such gains in in our, in our politics at the moment do you think the positives of something like this is that we can actually test the laws and institutions and the way that things work and almost kind of stress test them against the you know the despotism that uh, could well just be around the corner yeah i think so i think more importantly than that though is it's about perception I think what's really great about projects like the Good Law Project is we can see from the Brexit vote and from the narrative that's emerged around populism and the rise of the far right in this country that there is a sense that lots of people feel alienated from the key institutions that run the country as a whole. So the government and the police and really the legal system. And this is a really great opportunity for us to say, look, the legal system is not simply an institution which seeks to fight against you. It is your institution. You have some kind of ownership over it. So I think as well as the sort of element of testing the strength of our laws, which I think is very important, I think having actions like this and showing the fact that large, nameless outsourcing company that's exploiting its workers can be held to account is a really important signal to all those people out there who do have lives where they're working on zero hours contracts and they don't have the time to do this, that actually there is recourse for them within the system that they live. And we often forget that, I think. I think that's true. When the Human Rights Act went through, there was clearly led to a whole series of cases that then happened uh, in the law and great leaps forward and many of them very progressive things. But there was a backlash, it felt, in the public that that the Human Rights Mm -hmm. Act was for others. They, it was mm-hmm. somehow people who were not part of our community were able to get a kind of foothold of rights that then they were... And, and obviously, I don't believe that is true or how it has worked. And it's great that it's been a great advance for migrants or that it stopped the, uh, uh, the, the government being able to kind of overplay its hand in various ways. But I think projects like this show that, it, that actually there are brilliant sets of laws there for the little guy or gal uh, at various points, actually, and redressing that balance. Mm. And that some of the things that have been great moments of social justice, uh, gay people had to serve in the military, for example, that came through a legal case. And it came because it was an issue the government did not want to deal with and could effectively ignore outside campaign groups or even small groups in parliament with EDMs and that. That could all be put to one side. But the law meant there was a date and a time and a moment and there was choices put in front of the government. They had to pick one of those sides. And often big campaigns are won through moments of that mm-hmm. kind. And the law presents really big opportunities for that. You know, populism is a is a response to a breakdown of trust in the establishment. And I'm I'm absolutely not a, a, a populist, but I do understand and indeed um, empathise with those who feel that the establishment is not for them. You know, it's quite difficult actually to get a sense of that if you sit um, where I sit, you know, in my uh, well-padded ass in a comfortable leather chair <laughs> um, 
working as a QC, earning a lot of money. I, I, I have no direct experience of what it's like to live a life where the establishment is not for you. Um, I do remember what it was like from my own childhood, though. And that, for me, is a real driving force. Um, I remember that, and I want to articulate to people that the establishment um, can work for them, that it should work for them. Um, centrally, for me, I want to try and compel the establishment to do what it really ought to do, what its obligation is, um, which mm. is to deliver for, 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 for people who, who need the establishment's help. I think that's a really good way of explaining it, actually. We do need to take a short break there, but uh, next we'll be talking about things in a bit more detail, such as tax avoidance and uh, maybe even Brexit as well. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Good Law Project has uh, been involved in a number of cases, including big companies um, such as Uber. Uh, I'd just like to go through some of these areas to understand a bit about what you're doing in each. Obviously, you've had an interest in tax for a very long time. You've written a blog called Waiting for Tax for, for many years. What, what kind of things are you doing on tax avoidance? Um, this relates to Uber, doesn't it? This does relate to Uber. So some months ago, uh, with an ITV film crew in tow, um, I got a, an Uber um, to Uber HQ uh, and handed over to... Uh, them uh, a letter before action <laughs> demanding that they give me a VAT invoice for that journey. And I demanded a VAT invoice from them because the consequence of them giving me a VAT invoice would be them recognising that they had to charge VAT on that journey. And if they had to charge VAT, the consequence of that would be that they owed, um, by my calculations, north of a billion pounds to HMRC, VAT that HMRC wasn't collecting, VAT that that our public services need, VAT that people feel, I think, with justification that the government is not collecting from these enormously powerful multinationals, uh, and tax that people feel the government is not collecting from these multinationals in a way that drives distrust in the establishment and in turn generates demand for populist leaders in a way that I think is profoundly mm. unhealthy for our democracy. Obviously, we use 
talking specifically about Uber here, but is this something, this, you know, not uh, having that kind of tax arrangement, is that something that is uh, common in the gig economy? Could, could we potentially be looking at billions and billions that are missing here? So, I mean, the gig economy does two things, really. One is that it delivers the enormous advantages in terms of um, efficient markets for 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 workers and for consumers of the services that um, are offered through the gig economy. Um, and I, you know, applaud and want um, for all of us those um, advantages. But another thing that the gig economy does is it identifies weaknesses in regulatory structures. So it identifies tax weaknesses, it identifies um, labour market regulation weaknesses, and it sits on those weaknesses like a like a vampire um, <laughs> sucking um, out of the system everything that it can. And many of the advantages that the gig economy enjoys are born of regulatory arbitrages. And, you know, so to take Uber as an example, Uber's entire edifice is built on the notion that it is an intermediator. In other words, it's not really supplying taxi services. It's just acting as a business-to-business brand. It's yeah. it's broking services to drivers. But, of course, the reality is nothing like that at all. The reality is um, Uber markets itself as um, as a taxi service, and, and that's why um, when you go to, um, to Durban um, or you go to New Delhi, um, you feel comfortable taking an Uber it's because you know that Uber is carefully curating the service. So to the public, it pretends to be the sort of big consumer-facing brand, and its lawyers behind the scenes construct this artifice um, of it being a broker because that artifice delivers all these regulatory advantages. And it's that tension which sits right at the heart, actually, of many of these gig economy uh, uh, companies, and it's that tension that this Uber case is seeking to explode. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, because, like, Rabbit. Well, I was in New York uh, the other week and it's advertised mm. everywhere, but that does seem to be bridging a series of people who have got all kinds of skills that can earn their money in different ways that uh, one day might be doing painting and the next day might be doing plastering or somebody might build your Ikea furniture or whatever. Uh, and that is a kind of, does seem to be a genuine arbitration service. I'm sure there are uh, positives and negatives and there are other vans, brands available, etc. But there is a particular thing about how <laughs> some companies operate in which they demand essentially monopolistic practices of their employees. So if you're coming, if you, if you are doing driving services, you have to do them through, in this case, say Uber. But clearly, they are advertising out into the world with a very consistent brand. And, you know, if you are driving, driving for Uber in certain cities, you very clearly have to have it kind of plastered over the side mm. of your car. So there's a kind of, they are trying to get the best of both worlds and exploit those loopholes and doing so off the back of venture capital money that is also manipulating the market in other ways to try and crowd out competition. So, um, yeah, important intervention. And, and you know, if they're, de- if they're depriving the public services of billions of pounds um, of money, that is an injustice that needs to be sorted. Obviously, its drivers aren't considered employees of uber because they're self-employed and uber is just this mythical Mm. broker that happens to tell them to do lots of things okay but surely that has a second cost for public services because those workers are in insecure employment so that means where in other cases their employer might provide them with a measure of security over say a contract these employees 
employees, rather, um, might find themselves knowing to the air quotes. <laughs> yes, I no, no, Ended the, the flying fingers thing there <laughs> or, or around employees. Uh, forgot no one can see me. Um, <laughs> if they say, if their car breaks down and they don't have insurance to pay for that and they end up unemployed, it's the state that pays for it. And actually, surely if they're full-time Uber drivers, they should be employed by Uber and they should have a contract and Uber should provide them with some security to stop that happening. And so I think that, yes, the taxing is huge and we need the money for our public services, but also what this shows is actually the impact that this has on workers' rights and the cost that this has to our public services as a whole and actually to our society as a whole because having lots of people in insecure employment makes them unhappy, makes them lonely, it makes it much harder for you to have a family life and all those things are really important to our country and our society as well. Um, The most staggering thing, right, our tax law encourages companies to treat individuals as self-employed. The consequence of them being self-employed is also that the company does not have to provide um, those workers with a safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were employed, the obligation to provide the safety net would fall on the company. So just think about that for a second. Our tax law is encouraging capital to put the burden of providing a safety net on the state. Um, it should mm-hmm. be the exact opposite. We should be um, providing tax incentives to employers to provide safety nets for their workers. Instead, the tax law operates to provide disincentives to employers to provide safety nets. So mm-hmm. the state, as it were, suffers twice over. It suffers the diminution in tax revenues, and it also suffers the cost of having to um, pay for the safety net that would otherwise fall on employers. And Uber's a perfect example of that. How do you rate your chances of success here? Is it a realistic objective to add a billion pounds to the country's coffers? It is. It is. Um, So I'm a lawyer and so it is not unknown for me to talk with apparent authority about subjects I am very, very ignorant of. Um, (laughs) But I am a tax lawyer uh, and this is a subject I can talk with genuine authority about. And um, we've also employed another QC. I'm a QC. We've employed a, a very starry QC called George Peretz, who's acting for us in the case. I think we're going to win. He thinks we're going to win. And if anyone out there wants to put a, a, a bet on it for charity, then they can. Uh, they know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure that there are uh, links in the show notes uh, under the podcast. Um, and Do you think you'll be getting thanked by Philip Hammond when you win it? So this is, is the Treasury kind of on your... Do they want to make that change that you're talking about? Is it on your side in the direction of travel? This is uh, quite a fun thing, actually. If you roll the clock forward sort of nine months and you assume we're now three months away from having the matter determined and you're the government and you're thinking to yourself, hang on a second, if the Good Law Project wins this case, what that's going to reveal is that we, the government sat and did nothing. We left a billion pounds of public money lying on mm. the floor and we were we were waiting for someone, anyone, to go along and pick it up for the benefit of the state. I mean, that would be a profoundly damaging thing for the government. And, you know, if you're a decent functioning opposition party, you want to be hammering away at that point. You want to be putting mm. the government at risk of uh, being exposed as having left Um, the collection of these staggering amounts of tax um, to private individuals because you, the government, aren't doing the job properly. 
And so we expect to find out in about a year's time, you think? I think that's uh, realistic from, from, from where we are. I mean, it's not without difficulty. It's not without sort of procedural difficulty because... Um, <laughs> if it was easy, someone would have done it, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not necessarily true. I mean, there's, you know, my own personal interest in the case is a pound and sixpence, mm. literally, a pound and sixpence of VAT that I'll get back. The, the state's interest is a billion quid. It's an awful lot of work. Um, mm. So I'm not sure that uh, someone else would have done it if it was easy. But the real difficulty is if you're trying to extract a billion pounds from a great big beast like Uber, it can afford to throw an awful lot of money at the problem, and, and that's fine. Um, the problem is if I lose, all that money rests on my back, so I could end up owing millions of pounds in adverse costs. And it's trying to manage that adverse cost risk that actually is the real problem, mm. not whether I'm right in substance. Yeah. And obviously this case touches on um, workers' rights as well, as you just mentioned. And, um, uh, and we talked about that a little bit earlier as well. Are there other are there cases you have going on in, in that kind of area at the moment? So we've got a number of cases involving abuses of vulnerable workers. Hmm. Uh, we are bringing a case against um, Capita, and a company called FDM Group, which is a company listed on the FTSE 250, market cap of in excess of a billion pounds. And these companies are engaged in a practice where they take um, graduates without any um, bargaining power in the in the workplace. Um, FDM takes um, people who have left the army mm-hmm. um, without marketable skills, and it um, gives them fun- a fairly valueless training and then sends them out to work for its clients um, for very small sums of money on incredibly asymmetric terms. The the real um, piece of kind of moral evil in those transactions is that if you find that you're unable to work for Capital or FDM on these terms and you want to walk away, they charge you a, a release fee of tens. I've seen one case it was £35,000 to walk away from these arrangements. So it's like indentured mm-hmm. labour. It's yeah. like indentured labour. It's a kind of modern form of slavery. And indeed, um, I'm hoping that the modern slavery... Act commissioner may become involved. Mm. But at the moment, Capita has announced it's going to desist from this practice. It said that publicly. So we're going to sue FDM and we're going to sue another company and called Sparta Global. A direct response? That was a direct response. Um, Capita decided um, it didn't want to have this fight. This is a fight they cannot win. They yeah. cannot win this fight. They are legally, clearly wrong. We will win this. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I take my, my pleasures where I can find them. Um, I've watched um, FDM's share price um, fall since we've started banging um, the drum <laughs> about their evil practice. I think, we, on stage, we not like 200 million quid off their market cap. Um, it's ever so juvenile of me to take pleasure in that, but, but, but I have. <laughs> Sometimes bullies need people just to stand up to them, and the very presence yeah. of somebody saying hold on here, this is clearly unjust, and I'm going to put it in some legalese language and a letter from a QC is sometimes all they need to make that change. And that in itself can be quite a big big breakthrough for people. And I think one of the things that we've kind of convinced ourselves as the kind of labour market feels more middle class is that there isn't a role for trade unions if you've got a degree, Mm. because you're fine, because you're articulate, you can speak for yourself. Mm. If you fought for your country, you're clearly somebody who can go into the workplace and get what you need from that relationship. And invariably, that is proving time and again not to be true, and that collective action is a really important and often vital way of Mm. getting leaps forward. And you know, we haven't cracked this yet um, as the labour movement in its broadest sense uh, or any of the particular trade unions arguably beck to prospect 
have done better things on this because they've got more self-employed workers or uh, people who, who, who trade their skills more directly with the potential employer. But it's such a big area that we've got to go in. And I think that is quite interesting. I mean, one of the reasons why Connor's a bit about if it were easy to be done already is these are new problems that are emerging mm. all of the time. Yeah, okay. um, and so in that sense, yeah. there hasn't been the chance to do mm. them yet. So the fact there is some capacity in the system that your project is creating for pushback directly in this way, I think is also quite exciting. Um, absolutely. Um, join a union. People, you know, particularly professional people, don't really understand that you don't actually have to work in the industry that a union looks after to, to, to join that union. I am not a boilermaker, uh, and yet I am a member of the GMB, and I strongly encourage everyone, <laughs> everyone to join a union, um, and preferably the GMB, of course. <laughs> no, absolutely right. And, and Joe, um, obviously we couldn't bring you here without talking a little bit about Brexit which is something that I think anyone who's familiar with you on Twitter will know that you are quite a vocal critic of, uh, I think it's fair to say. But you also do do take on some Brexit cases through the Good Law Project as well. What kind of stuff have you been doing? We basically have three Brexit cases at the moment. There's a case that'll be heard before the inner house of the Court of Sessions, the Scottish Court of Appeal, if you like, on the 15th of August. Glad you explained that, because I had no idea what that was. <laughs> well, I just called it the Scottish Court of Appeal on Twitter, and the Scottish lawyer got very, very cross with me yeah. for, for misdescribing, so I'm now doing it both ways. Um, <laughs> but what that case seeks to establish is that the United Kingdom has the right unilaterally to withdraw its Article 50 notice if it decides that it wants to. There's a case... Uh, uh, about so is that essentially a case against the European Union? Well, it, it, it's it's a case that seeks an answer to what is a question of law. Mm. Article 50 is silent on the subject of whether you can withdraw your Article 50 notice having served it. Mm. And, you know, everyone kind of understands that if we ask, um, the European Union is likely to say yes. But it's not clear whether they will impose terms for saying yes. They might, for mm. example, say that um, we would have to give up our rebate or some of the opt-outs that we've negotiated for ourselves over the years. We might have to become um, like other EU nations and play by all of the rules. At the moment, of course, we only have to play by some of the rules because we have all these opt-outs. And I want to make it politically as easy as possible for mm. our parliament to withdraw the Article 50 notice if it decides that that's what it wants to do. And the way to make it easy is to be able to answer with absolute legal clarity the question, um, will we remain exactly where we are mm. if we withdraw the notice? So that's what that case is and about. And why the Scottish courts? Um, well, I have a number of Scottish uh, parliamentarians. There's a couple of MSPs, there's some Scottish MEPs, there are Scottish MPs who are co-petitioners with me. I mean, the Good Law Project is underwriting that case, so we are indemnifying all of the other claimants in that case because without that indemnity uh, they would feel um, too exposed to financial risk to be claimants and yet politically uh, legally it's important that they be co-claimants alongside me. Um, I think one, one of the earliest episodes of the Progressive Britain podcast was with uh, Roger Liddell on, on the question of can Article 50 be revoked um, I do suggest people go back and listen to that. That that was really interesting. But you, you said you had a also relevant again because he was very good on what the deal might mean and the mm. three different deals and stuff. So it's that that podcast is very relevant to some of where we yeah, are now. What's yeah. coming in the next few weeks? Absolutely. Um, you said that you had three. Uh, what 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 are the other ones? That so the second case is one that we're still waiting for the answer on. So some time ago, 
uh, was in December last year. The Good Law Project initiated a judicial review of the Electoral Commission, and it was that judicial review that forced the Electoral Commission to reopen its investigation into whether Vote Leave had overspent. Uh, and we now know that the Electoral Commission has found that Vote Leave cheated. It overspent uh, very, very significantly, and it's been referred to the police. Um, so... There's that case, and there's another little bit, actually, of that case which we're still waiting to hear from the court on. And that other little bit is this. It, we, we say that it doesn't actually matter what facts the Electoral Commission has found or not found. On the facts that Vote Leave admits, it is clear that um, Vote Leave broke the law. And that's really powerful for a couple of reasons. One is that it would be a judicial statement that um, vote leave cheated beyond any doubt. Uh, so it would be a judge saying that vote leave cheated. It would be a judge saying that the electoral commission had mm. failed to manage the referendum process properly. And it's part of how parliamentarians should approach this question of whether what has been represented to us to be the will of the people can be relied upon um, to be the will of the people. We know that they cheated. And um, we know, for example, with Lance Armstrong, uh, that those who came second did not have to prove that it was Lance Armstrong's <laughs> massive drug use uh, that caused um, them to be beaten into second place. Yeah. We know what fairness requires. So there's that case as well. Uh, and then there's a case in Amsterdam. That was actually, sorry, just on that point, I was on... Um a talk radio show with Julia Hartley Brewer, who is obviously a, uh, a massive Brexiteer a few weeks ago. And, and she was, you know, saying, well, uh, didn't remain overspend. Well, aren't there these questions to ask? It's like, maybe there are those questions to ask, but surely the priority is asking them of the winning campaign. Yeah. Like, mm. And she obviously just never thought about it in that term before. And it, it seems remarkable that they think that this is a brilliant response to what seems to be fairly serious breach of campaigning law. Well, I mean, that point is certainly true. Uh, it's also simply wrong to say that there is any evidence of uh, any cheating um, by Remain. I mean, there are, there, there are a couple of invoices that weren't declared, so, you know, like a few hundred quid. But I've not seen any evidence at all that suggests that Remain overspent mm. or otherwise cheated. You know, the rules that Parliament laid down were observed by the Remain campaign. And um, we now know that Vote Leave threatened the Electoral Commission with judicial review proceedings. If they thought they had a good case to show that Remain cheated, why did they not bring that case? Why did they not do what the Good Law Project did? Bring the case, let the judges decide, and, uh, and, and, and you know, either they would expose Remain's cheating um, or they wouldn't. They haven't done that. They've just sat on the sidelines and whined and I think it's a perfectly reasonable inference to draw from that, that the advice that they were getting was there was no cheating by the Remain side. That's interesting. And so I think I cut you off there. Did you have a final? So there's also a case in Amsterdam. So there's this interesting point arising out of Article 20 uh, of the treaty. Article 20 says that if you are a citizen of an EU member state, you require EU citizenship. Uh, and it says that EU citizenship is not the same as national citizenship. It's a discrete thing, a separate thing. And um, Article 20 doesn't say what's to happen if your member state ceases to be a member state. But if EU citizenship really is a separate thing from national citizenship, it must follow that the loss of your state from the EU cannot automatically have the consequence that you lose your EU citizenship. 
So the prize in that case would be that 64 million UK citizens would retain, as a matter of legal entitlement, their EU citizenship mm-hmm. after Brexit. And so we've persuaded a first instance court in uh, Amsterdam that we've got a, an arguable case on that point, a very powerful first instance court. The judge in question sat in the uh, Supreme Court in the Netherlands for a number of years. And we also persuaded the Court of Appeal in Amsterdam that we had an arguable point on that case. Um, there's a technical reason why um, they want us to wait a little longer before they refer the question to the Court of Justice. And so um, if funding is available, um, that's the third case that we will um, bring. And, you know, uh, if I do one thing of value in my life, uh, you know, bringing that case, establishing that point, I mean, how incredibly powerful would that be? I don't know, Jolien's billion sounds, uh, I'm, I'm pretty taken with that idea. <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to that going on. Uh, hospitals and schools in the next couple of years. Um, true, but if that, I mean, imagine what that would do to everyone giving 64 million people EU citizenship. Yeah. Mm. We'd not be rushing to get Irish passports or Italian passports <laughs> or, or, or picking out those long lost relatives like, Nan, where are you actually from? <laughs> and, uh, I've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of people out there doing that, so I'm sure you'll, uh, you'll get plenty of donations for that case. I'm afraid we have just run out of time, but uh, thank you so much for, for coming on today, Joe. And, uh, Listeners, do stick with us because next we've got the political pub quiz question. Every week we ask a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's show. I love this question. Um, Bolton West Labour Party is holding a constituency meeting this Thursday, 26th of July. All I want you to tell us is what is the location of where that meeting is being held. Send our answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or at Progress Online on Twitter, and you too could win a Progress mug and Sheila's undying love. <laughs> we need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Joe Moreham joining us today. Do send your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review, and we'll respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And please don't forget to subscribe and write. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music is When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to James Shield, who produced this podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.